This morning we have uh, a friend of mine and someone who's been connected here uh, at Christian Center because through relationship since probably about 83, 81, 81, 1981. Um, I just took a shot in the dark right before I went to Mexico. I sent off a quick email and said, Jason, just realized you're going to be up here. Can you come and minister the word? And so he just sneak away this morning and share with us. Then he's going to be up here every night this week sharing. Um, and he's just got a powerful word. I've known I've known Jason probably since about 1986 or 1987. We're through a common friend, and, and it's been great to have him as a as a friend. But God has done some miraculous things through this man's ministry and life, and his children, his wife, all of his kids. Now are all. I mean, we, all three of them are going on missions trips within the next couple of weeks. China, Philippines, and, and Cambodia. And so, you know, he's got an international family, ministry, his wife, Cindy. And so we're going to ask him to come, come forward here. And at the end of the service, we want to take another offering. And this offering will go 100% to just continue the ministry that Jason's involved in. And because at the end of the service, his desire is to pray and minister, we're going to ask everyone to give by putting it in an envelope, writing Jason on it, and just dropping it into the receptacle. That way we don't break the flow of the ministry and spirit. But don't neglect to do that. Now, here's the thing. You will be have the chance all week long to give to, to, to his ministry. And, and um, so this isn't your only opportunity. But if you came ready this morning, we're going to do that. As you leave, just, just drop that in there. You can make the checks payable to Big Bear Christian Center as long as we know that says... Um, Jason Friend, on an envelope or on your check, we'll get 100% of that offering to him. But I'm going to let Jason List uh, share about himself and, and bring him forward. And... All right. Well, can you hear me? You can hear me, but can you hear me? Are you hearing me now? All right. I think there we go. All right. Wonderful. It is great. Absolutely wonderful to be back in the promised land. I Coming up the hill, you know, you come into the valley, and you can't help but feel that you are, you are driving into the promised land. I see one or two people nodding, and the rest of you are simply laughing at me. This is a blessed place. You live in a blessed land, and you are a blessed people. My daughter Chanel is with me uh, here this morning. I'm going to ask her to simply wave her hand. She is uh, she's our middle child. She's headed to the Philippines in two days. Selena, our oldest daughter, is driving to LAX right now with my wife. She's going to China on the flight that leaves at 1.20. And uh, Jasmine, the baby of the family, she leaves for Cambodia in about a week and a half. The number one question that I'm asked as a missionary and evangelist that travels around the world is, why, do, why don't we see the same things, the same miracles, the healings, all those wonderful things that we hear about overseas, why don't we see them here in the United States? How many of you ever asked yourself that question? It's the number one question that I'm asked. So today we're going to talk about why we don't see those things, and certain things that we can be, that we can be, in order to see more miracles. So today we're going to talk about the faith that moves the hand of God. How many of you want to have the faith that moves the hand of God? All right. One of the problems that we face in our North American culture, and we're going to talk about a few deep things today. And that is that you and I have been sold a bill of goods and we have bought into it hook, line, and sinker. If Satan were going to create doubt, lack of faith, skepticism, he would have planted that seed that would germinate over 10, 20, 30, 100, 500, thousands of years so that that germinating seed of an idea would move throughout culture and society, impact nations, and impact empires. And so what he did was, is he picked an individual 
at the height of that individual's influence in one of the most influential cultures in history, at that nation's highest point, pinnacle of their influence, and he planted this idea that emerged between these two individuals. The one on the left is named Plato. Now, Plato, he believed that there were two worlds. One was a perfect world, and the other one was a world of shadows. It was an imperfect world that was a reflection of that perfect world. He believed that we lived in that world of shadows, that this world that you and I live in is merely a reflection, an imperfect reflection, of what heaven is, the perfect world. And to his credit, he almost got it right. Aristotle, the guy on the right, is the one that embraced the idea that I'm about to talk about. And that is that you do not discover truth by spiritual, mystic kinds of exploration, but you discover truth by the gathering of empirical evidence. That there's a separation between the natural and the supernatural. That there's a huge continuum. There's a huge chasm between what is natural and what is supernatural, if even the supernatural exists. Well, you let that idea germinate over the centuries, and eventually you have a nation that says, we believe in the separation of church and... Seeing is... See, you bought into it hook, line, and sinker. You repeat the doctrine, Aristotle would be so proud of all of you this morning. He would say, these are my children. They have, I have taught them well. Seeing is, is believing, but in the kingdom of God, believing is seeing. That's the difference. So we're going to talk about today this idea of New Testament faith. New Testament faith is simply the faith of a child that when his father is standing in the pool and his daddy says, jump, that child jumps, doesn't think twice about it. It's not even conceivable that the child would drown. It wouldn't even be possible that he could drown because he knows that he knows that he knows that what? That his father is going to catch him. Now, those of us who have been educated, we calculate our weight and the strength of dad. Right? We gather that empirical evidence and we make a judgment call. So the first thing that we're going to talk about, and we're going to move to the next slide, is not only this concept of developing the faith that moves the hand of God. Now we'll move on to the next one. But we're going to talk about what we need to be. In order to have things, you have to do things. And before you can do things, you must be someone. You have to be before you can do. You have to do before you can have. You can't just be a billionaire. You can't just have a billion dollars. Before you have a billion dollars, you must do something to earn those million dollars or billion dollars. And before you can do something to earn those billion dollars, you must become someone. So I would argue that there are lots of millionaires in this place. Lots of them. I want you to nudge your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. The problem is, is that millionaire inside or that billionaire inside has not become that billionaire. And because you haven't become that billionaire or millionaire, you are not doing what billionaires do to make their money. And if you don't do what billionaires do to make their money, then you don't have a billion dollars. I could take... Steve Jobs, if he were still alive, remove everything that he did at Apple, remove everything that he did at Pixar, take him to a foreign country, teach him the language, and within 10 years, he'd become a millionaire. Because he's wired in such a way that he does what millionaires do. Same thing with Henry Ford. Same thing with Bill Gates. You see, So we're going to talk about what we must be. Well, the first thing in the next slide we're going to talk about, the first thing that we must be is we must embrace what these Asians, Africans, and Latin Americas, they all are. What they, what they have in terms of who they are as human beings, and they all possess this holistic view of life. That is a staunch difference between Latins and Americans. We separate the supernatural from the natural, but Latins do not. That's why in Mexico, if your child gets sick, 
you're just as likely to take that child to the witch doctor before you take him to the medical doctor. Because to them, spiritual and physical and everything is holistic. It's all wrapped up into one huge ball. We breathe, we eat, we do, and we are part of the same world that demons are in. They don't live in some sub-universe. We are all inhabiting the same space. So they embrace what we call a holistic view of life. I'm not asking you to see a demon under every rock. But I am asking you to see that there are principalities of darkness as well as the kingdom of light that influences everything from the President of the United States all the way down to the janitor that sweeps the floors in our high schools and our middle schools. We are at war 24 hours a day. There's a war 24 hours a day over the very thoughts of our minds, and we're the ones who determine which side wins. So with that, we're going to move on to the first element. First element that we will find in terms of people who lived in the New Testament and Latins and Asians and Africans that see the hand of God move. This is the first one. And this one is something that really, really flies in the face of most Americans. They have a tremendous amount of honor and respect for authority. They have a significant amount of honor and respect for those who are in spiritual authority as well as those who are in governmental authority. Now, that really does not fly well with uh, Americans. And if you want to be even more specific, those of us in the West have even a greater problem with it. That's why they call it the wild, wild West. Because we have a problem with authority. And if you don't believe me, Tell me what your opinion is of the President of the United States. Don't answer that question. Tell me what your opinion is of the Governor of the State of California. Don't answer that question. Tell me what your opinion is of the 535 guys that are running things on Capitol Hill. Or perhaps the Supreme Court Justices. Don't answer those questions. And don't tell me that you don't have a problem with uh, authority. When a CHP officer pulls us over... What's the thing that goes through our mind? Rude, or perhaps he must have a quota fulfilled. Or why couldn't he be busy finding real criminals? Right? Instead of pulling over a law-abiding citizen. Granted, I was only doing 92 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, but I am a law-abiding citizen. We all have our issues with authority, especially those in the West. And if it wasn't for the Pacific Ocean, we would have kept moving west. We just ran out of land. Now, California tends to be sort of a fruitcake state. But the heart of California, not the coastland, but the San Bernardino towards the east, once you move into Arizona, Nevada, these are gunslingers. They do not like to be told what to do. Survivalists live in these mountains. And so, yes, we do have a problem with authority, and it's no wonder if we have a problem with authority that we don't see any miracles happening in our lives. Because rebellion never is a good seed for revival. I was, pre I was speaking at a fresh fire conference in the San Bernardino area, drove on to the, uh, onto the church uh, property, and I was immediately greeted by an immigrant. Now, how he determined that I was the guest speaker is beyond me, because if you've seen my truck, that is not a keynote speaker truck. It has a dent in the back fender. And one of the reasons why I've never repaired the... I may repair it this week. But one of the reasons why I never repaired the dent is because I feel that a dent in your vehicle is carjack, carjack proofing your car. I mean, who rips off a car... I mean, who rips off a dented car? Nobody steals a dented car. Or a dirty one, for that matter. He walked up to me and he says, Are you Jason Friend? I said, Yes. Now, his, his English was so-so. This man refused to let me carry any of my books out of my truck, refused to let me carry my own Bible. He took my books, my Bible, 
walked them all into the church after several churches, set up the book table, manned the book table. When it was done, he broke down the book table and took everything back to the truck and handed me my keys. And that is the way one is treated when one is in ministry among foreigners and those who receive us overseas. Is it true or not true? You are treated like royalty in Mexico as a minister. We are not. Now, I know it sounds self-serving. And he didn't know I was going to speak on this. But if I tell you, hey, you need to go to the gym, and you need to go to the gym, but I happen to be the owner of the gym, does that sound self-serving? Perhaps. But is it truth? Absolutely. Now, I'm not trying to do anything else but to simply encourage you to walk in the very elements that I see in people's lives overseas and in the New Testament. It's that simple. My dad said it so well. As people would come into his bar, he'd look at them and said, when they would just chatter, 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 and have their opinions, he'd say, why don't you just put something else on the bar beside your elbow? In other words, if you want to see God work in your life, show some respect. Show some godly respect to those who are in authority over you, not only your pastor, but also those who are in governmental authority over you. Now, some of you are going to say, well, I would like to hear what Jesus has to say about that, and I think that's a great idea. Let's turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is a wonderful, wonderful verse. It's a wonderful passage, I should say, that talks about, and you know what? I'm having a little bit of a problem with my Bible uh, program here. Can I borrow your Bible? It falls, falls apart at the end. That's, that's a sign of a good, well-used Bible. Notice what it says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, now when he concluded all these things in hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him. Notice that he sent the elders. <gasps> we have it on the screen. See, I didn't need the Bible after all. It's right, it's right there. It says that he sent some elders of the Jews to him. That was the first thing that he did. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Verse 6. It says, then Jesus went with them. So obviously, Jesus was a fundraiser. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent, what does it say? It says that he sent friends to him. So the first group was a group of Jews. People who were involved in the construction of the synagogue. The second group, now these are the close confidants. And it says, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. He was not far from the house. I'm sorry. Next slide. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you that I have not found, what does it say? I have not what? I have not found such great faith even where? In Big Bear. In Big Bear. Then the men who had returned to the house and found the servant well. Now, it's very important that you understand that Jesus is equating this man's Authority and respect for authority with faith. He didn't say, I have not found such great respect in all of Israel. I have not found such great honor in Big Bear. He said, I have not found such great faith 
in Israel. So many times when you travel around the world or if you come in contact with people who somehow study the New Testament and get into the lives of the people of the New Testament, they have a significant amount of honor and respect for those in authority. They will do whatever needs to be done in order to gain favor in the eyes of their leadership. I was in um, Buenos Aires about a year and a half ago, two years ago, and I was preaching in uh, a, a church called King of Kings, a church of about 30,000 people. And i got to tell you, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a gringo. So in a lot of ways, I'm kind of like you. You know, when I'm sitting there and, you know, pastors preach, you know, the same thing goes through my mind, goes through your mind. You know, everything from, and this is really good, I've never heard that before, to when we get out of here, uh, whatever it is, you know, I, I, I'm just like, and I had to go to the church that day, it was 4 o'clock, and I did my radio program. did my radio program, and I left, and I was going back to the hotel to prepare because I was going to preach in the church that night. That night. As I'm coming out of the church, now it's Tuesday night. They've given the church approximately three days anticipation of this campaign, which we would never do in the United States. We need six months to start telling everybody, remind everybody. Then we've got to put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter. Then we've got to do flyers and do tickets and raffle things off, all kinds of things. You know, it'll be fun, the whole bit. There, three days before they announce it, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm walking out of the church, and I see a line of about 400 people lined up in the pouring rain. I turned to my driver and I said, what are all these people doing here? He said, oh, they're, they're lining up for uh, church. I said, they're lining up for the campaign tonight? Tonight? In the pouring rain? He says, yeah. I said, there must be 400 people here. Pouring rain. Now, I didn't say anything out loud, but I said to myself, you know, I know the speaker who's coming. And I wouldn't be standing in line to hear him. And I like me. I like me a lot, but I don't like me that much. And the Lord said, they're not here to hear you. They're here to hear me. And i got to tell you, that place was packed to the gills. 2,500 people packed into that church. 1,000 people in the upstairs over room. And 1,000 people three blocks down the road watching the FO's circuit. Tuesday night. Three days notice. Hunger and thirst. And people healed. People set free. People saved. Probably 500 first-time decisions that night alone. It wasn't because of an eloquent sermon. Because they have a significant desire to gain favor in the eyes of their leadership. The second area that we're going to talk about is that people in the New Testament and overseas have what we call a great sense of urgency and desperation. That, again, is something that we have a real hard time with because we do everything we can to eliminate our urgency and our desperation. We have, this is what we have. We have POSs, PPOs, HMOs, and even GTOs. We have life insurance, health insurance, dental insurance, car insurance, renter's insurance, fire insurance, and we can even take out policies on different parts of our body if we so desire. Ask Dolly Parton. This is meant to eliminate urgency and desperation. The rest of the world doesn't understand HMOs and PPOs. They don't understand dental insurance. I came from a country last week that I mentioned before that up until recently and today I still don't even know if it's the case. They do not use anesthesia. The dentists don't use anesthesia. You can imagine how popular that man is. We do everything humanly possible to eliminate God and depending upon Him as a culture. Everything. We stock up on our food. We stock up on our, in our banking accounts. We do everything humanly possible to eliminate emergency and desperation. But in the New Testament... They didn't have that luxury. So they had to depend on the Lord. They had to depend on the Lord. There is a story, a wonderful story, about four individuals who loved their friends so much they carried this guy for several miles. Now, I don't know if you've ever carried weight, but the hardest weight to carry and the heaviest weight is dead human weight. 
You ever had somebody faint in your arms? That's a whole lot of weight. And so this guy, who probably weighed anywhere from 150 to 200 pounds, was carried by his four friends on a cot a great distance. And when they got to the place where they heard that Jesus was teaching, they found the place was completely packed to the gills. There was no way in. So one of them just threw in the towel and said, Now forget it. Isn't that what happened? No, they had, they had a significant amount of desperation. There was no way, no way they were going to let some small crowd stop them. Or the owner of the house was not going to stop them. Matter of fact, the second story to get up onto the roof wasn't going to stop them. And even the roof itself was not enough to stop these guys. So they somehow hoisted the guy up after a two-mile walk up the side of the walked him across, calculated the place where they thought Jesus was teaching, and blew a hole through that roof. Can you imagine being in your home? You got a Bible study. And all of a sudden you hear, and all of a sudden, I guarantee you what would be coming out of your mouth was, I have not seen such great faith. That would not be the words that would be coming out of your mouth. But Jesus, it says that when he saw their faith associated with this desperation, so we have faith associated with honor and respect, and now we have faith associated with desperation and urgency. When he saw their faith, he said to the young man, your sins are forgiven. Now I can imagine the guy. Let's see. Got up at 6 a.m. Took him three hours to get me here. Obviously everyone knows I cannot walk. I'm lowered on this cot. He can tell that I am, I am out of commission. You know, I came from a miracle... And I really appreciate the whole forgiveness of sin thing, but that is not why I'm here. That's not why I'm here. But see, the Lord knew that He had a barrier. That barrier had to be removed in order for that young man to receive His miracle. And I believe there are a lot of people, even in this place this morning, there's a miracle with your name on it. It hasn't come because you've allowed a barrier to fall between you and God. God wants to do something in your life. But God many times does not move forward until that barrier of sin is removed. For some, it's repentance for the very first time. Or for others, it's something that is hidden. Now, I'm not one to say what that is. That's really between you and God. But in this case, Jesus clearly points to this guy and says, you've got a barrier. Before we move forward, that barrier needs to be removed. Your sins are forgiven. Now the guy who had one obstacle, meaning the journey, and the house full of people is a second journey, now he's got a third obstacle, which all of a sudden emerges in the middle of the story, which is the Pharisees. The Pharisees rise up and they say, who can forgive sin but God alone? So now Jesus' attention that goes now from the paralyzed man is now having to focus on a spirit of religiosity. And the spirit of religiosity in the church today is one of the number one things that kills the move of the Spirit. It kills healings. It kills uh, all kinds of uh, deliverances and breakthroughs in people's lives because that spirit of religiosity that comes from those Pharisees creeps its head up, and now the Spirit of God has to deal with the fires that that Spirit brings in. So the poor guy is put on hold. Now Jesus has to deal with these guys, with their crazy... Aristotle thinking. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the irony was is that they were right. God is the only one who can forgive sins. And by suggesting that He can forgive sins, what Jesus is saying is, hey, I'm God. Because I have the authority to do that. So that's why He says, hey, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? What do you guys think? What do you think is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? Uh, okay, let's have a vote here. How many people think that it's uh, 
your, your sins are forgiven. Raise your hand. Okay, so we have... Uh, okay, and then how many of you say pick up your mat and walk? Okay, now I know that half of you did not vote. I know that you half of you did not vote. I promise you, when I ask you to vote, I will not throw a curveball at you. I won't put a... Let me... For example, I, I mean... Can I, I like to see a show of hands. How many of you would consider yourselves honest and reasonably intelligent? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, for those of you who did not raise your hand, was it the reasonably honest part or the intelligent part that was the stumbling block? No, I saw virtually every hand go up. All right. It is my opinion, but I think there is backing that also from scholars and theologians who would say it's easier publicly to say your sins are forgiven because there's no proof in the pudding. How are you going to prove that my sins are forgiven or your sins are You have no way of proving that your sins are forgiven or I have no way of proving that your sins are forgiven, but I have a way to prove whether you're healed or not. Because when I pull you up out of that wheelchair, out of that cot or out of that bed or whatever, and you fall flat on your face, <laughs> that's why it takes guts to say the latter so he turns to the Pharisees and says, just so that you guys understand that I'm the one that calls the shots here and that I have authority in heaven and on earth, not only am I saying to this guy that he has sins forgiven, but I'm also going to tell him to do the, the more difficult thing. Why don't you pick up your mat and walk? He launches out of that cot, picks up his mat, and begins to walk. And the whole crowd erupts. Even the Pharisees, they begin to, to praise God. And meanwhile, there are four guys looking through a hole in the roof. And they come down and they greet their friend for the very first time face to face. That desperation is what carried them to the end. So if you need God to do it, be careful not to throw in the towel. You never know when that miracle is just about to come. I'm going to finish with this last story. I shared it at the tent meeting last year. If every one of you were at the tent meeting, then I apologize, you'll have to hear it again. If half of you were at the tent meeting, then you'll enjoy this story. And those of you who have heard the story before, well, it's like a good song. Good songs are worth hearing a couple of times. We were holding the very first campaign, and there was a large crowd of about six or 700. And at the end of that night, I gave an altar call for healing. I came off the platform, and I prayed for approximately 300 people. The very first individual was a young lady by the name of Vivian. She was eight years of age, little girl. She was accompanied by her grandmother. And I prayed for probably tens of thousands of cases like this where the kid didn't want to be there, but the grandparent is shoving the kid up to the front. We've all seen this. And sometimes they'll say, hey, I need you to pray for my kid. He's rebellious. That's my favorite thing. The first thing that I always say is, I'm not praying for your kid, I'm praying for you. Kind of like uh, dog training school. When you go to dog training school, it's not to train the dog, it's to train you. That's why you go to dog training school. So the grandmother's pushing this kid forward, I'm thinking, maybe we have one of these cases, and she's crying, the girl's crying. So I get down on one knee and I ask her, I said, how can I pray for you? The grandmother interrupts. She said, she's missing three ribs. She's going to have curvature of the spine. We don't operate on her. We don't have the money. It was a marginalized, poor area. She said, we don't operate on her. According to the doctors, we took her to the clinic this morning. She's going to be an invalid by the time she's 18 years of age. I looked at her. I said, well, sweetheart, do you believe that God can heal you? I said, okay, well, we're going to pray. So we prayed. She just, she was just terrified. with tears streaming down her face. And after about three or four minutes, I got up and I had to pray for another 299 people. So I continued. At the end of the night, I feel a tug at my jacket. Tug at my jacket. It's Vivian. I turn around and she says, I believe the Lord is healed. Now, I heard a couple of awes and maybe a few amen insinuations. Uh, the rest of you were probably in my camp, which is kind of like the Missouri license plate that says Missouri is called the the show me state, right? Kind of like we'd like to take that, run it by a doctor before we just accept it. 
So I looked at her and I said, well, that's wonderful, sweetheart. Praise the Lord. Now, I don't have to say anything because you understand the, the nuances of language. You understand exactly what I'm saying and exactly what I'm not saying. That's because you're all native speakers. A Mexican might think that I'm actually celebrating if he didn't understand the nuance of the language. But you understand when I say by my tone, that's wonderful, sweetheart. Praise him. And the Lord said, well, to me at that moment, well, fancy pants, we can prove it if you'd like to see the proof. I turned to my left and there was a doctor standing right there. There was a doctor, and I walked over to the doctor, and I said, Hey, doctor, I said, we've got this case here. Uh, uh, this young lady goes, Oh, Vivian. He says, Vivian. He says, I looked at her earlier today. She came into the clinic. He said, that She's missing three ribs. He says, Unless we operate on her, she's going to be an invalid by the time she's 18. I said, Well, she claims that, that, that she's been healed, and, uh, you know, would you mind checking her out? She's not a problem. It's very simple. She just needs to have this, you know, the correct amount of ribs on both sides, and that's easy to count. So, he brought her over. He lifted up her shirt. He counted by twos up her spine. He took a step back. He's like, he said, "This is not the same back I looked at. Uh, this is not the same back I looked at earlier today." He said, "She's been completely healed, completely healed." Well, I felt like a man of faith at that moment. <laughs> Ten years went by. We were in 2004. My daughters, a few other ministries, 250 gringos invaded Costa Rica, had a crusade at the largest soccer stadium in the country. We were expecting 25,000 people. It had rained and rained and rained all afternoon. And that night we had 6,000 people. Now, some would say, 6,000. Listen, for an evangelist, there's never too many people. Ever. And 6,000 people in a stadium of 25,000 is a significant letdown. So I was sitting in the green room having a plum party. You know what a plum party is? A poor little old me party. I was sitting in there and I thought, you know, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Wow. What am I doing with my life? I can't believe this is. And the Lord says, you know, just get out there and preach and do your job and stop complaining. Just get out there and do it. You think this is going to be the last disappointment in your life? You think this is going to be the first or the last? It's not going to be the first or the last. So you might as well move forward. So I got out on that platform and I preached my heart out. Inside I was crying, but... On the outside, I preached my heart. I preached the message of faith and hope and everything that I could. And at the very end of the service, I saw some moving over to the side of the platform. And I looked over, and there was a teenage girl who was coming up the stairs. And how she got around the guards and the barricades and the security is beyond me. And now she's walking towards me on the platform, and she's 10 feet away. She says, Jason, do you recognize me? I said, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know who you are. She says, don't you recognize me? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I said, I, I, I don't. She says, it's me. It's me, Vivian. 18-year-old girl, 10 years after her, walking, talking, moving, with a perfectly healthy 18-year-old female body. And she says to me, I would like to have the microphone. Because these people need to hear about the great things that God has done. I got to tell you, a, a sense of desperation and urgency would be good for everyone to really depend on God. And with this, there's hope for you. Whether you're a billionaire or not, if you're a billionaire, you know that you have financial problems. I know those of you who are not billionaires cannot imagine that a billionaire would have financial problems. Because the IRS is trying to take it all away. Or you're in lawsuits. Or patent lawsuits. Or whatever it is. You got, pro you got issues. But no matter if you are a billionaire, have everything you need, 
or you have nothing. You can make the choice to be desperate. You say, well, how? Peter. Peter had a job. He had workers. He had his own business. He had his own wife, family, and his own home. We know that. Yet he chose to be desperate. He made a conscious choice to be desperate even in the midst of all his wealth. When he looked to the Lord, when the Lord says, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone just bolted out of there. They said, man alive, this is the craziest. We can't even handle this. He turned to the twelve. He said, are you guys going to take off as well? Peter chose to be desperate. He said, where else could we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. You can choose to depend on God. Father, I thank You for Your wonderful presence. Thank You for this Word this morning that I pray, Lord, would be an encouragement to many of us here today that seek to have the faith that moves Your hand. I pray, Lord, that for those who have come into this place who desperately need a breakthrough in their physical bodies, in their finances, in their lives, in their future, careers, their children, regardless of what issues they may be facing, I pray that you would first and foremost sovereignly communicate to them that everything is under control because you are a sovereign God who cares deeply about them. But I also pray, Lord, that you would give them, you give them hope, you give them unprecedented faith, and that you would allow their eyes to see your hand moving in their life. I pray, Lord, that just like Vivian, where there is an impossibility, where there is no possible way to humanly resolve the issue. She would step in, step in this day, this 8th of July, 2012, and do the miraculous. I pray that you would set the captive free, heal up the, the brokenhearted, and I pray that you would heal each and every person that is in this place. Where we turn our eyes upon you, and we choose to depend on You this day. I thank You, Lord, for Your presence. I thank You, Lord, for Your love. I bless my friends, and I ask that You would move in our midst. And I thank You, Lord, and I believe, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that You're going to do great things. And friend, if you've come today with that need in your life, regardless of what it is, but you would say, I need and desire to see the hand of God moving in my life. I need God's hand to move in my life. And right where you're at, I'm going, to have, I'm going to simply ask you to slip up your hand. For whatever miracle that may represent, I want you to keep that hand in the air and I don't want you to lower. Keep that hand in the air and do not lower. Say, I need and want to see the hand of God moving in my life. I need a miracle. I want to move towards that miracle. I want that open door. I need to move towards that open door. Keep that hand in the air and don't lower it. I want you to keep that hand in the air. And now with your hand in the air, I'm going to ask, and I know that's most of us, it is most of us, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with your hand in the air. And I along with you stand with my hand in the air. And I along with you am believing God for a miracle. Now I'm going to ask as we bring this time to a conclusion, I'm going to ask you to slip out from where you're standing and I'm going to ask you to come down here to the front. And I'm going to ask you to come and come with your hand in the air as well. And I want you to bring that need, that miracle, in your hand before the Lord. Bring it before the Lord. This is the true test of urgency. This is the true test of urgency. If you're urgent enough to leave the place where you're sitting and to move forward. Being, doing, having. I'm going to ask those of you who have come to move a little closer to me and then move to the left and the right away from the aisle so those who are in the aisle can come up here to the front as well. I want to give space to everyone. With your eyes closed, I just want to say this one thing before we pray. In the first book that I wrote, 
And the third book that I wrote, there's an article by a woman who's not a Christian who wrote in Time Magazine that when people go to church and they are in the building on a regular or more than a regular basis, they experience miracles. They're three times more likely to recover after an operation, three times less likely to have high blood pressure, three times less likely to die of certain illnesses or premature death. Being in God's presence on a regular or beyond regular brings healing to your life. Now, I want to highly encourage you. We will have altar calls like this every night in this campaign. Every night. And every night God will move. I want to encourage you. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the Word of God. Father, in Jesus' name, we lift up each and every one of these needs. We recognize You as our sole source. We recognize You as our one and true source. So we ask, Lord, today that You would move with power in our lives, that You would open unprecedented doors, that You would grant these people unprecedented favor. We pray, Lord, for healing upon the body. I pray that You would touch everything in their heads, their minds, their circulation in their brains, touch each and every chemical in the mind. I pray, Lord, that you would touch their sinuses. I pray you would touch their gums, their teeth, their mouth, touch their lips, touch their skin, touch their hair follicles, every element of their body. I pray, Lord, that you would touch their throats. I pray that you would touch their shoulders, their muscular systems, cardiovascular systems, respiratory systems, touch their kidney functions. I pray, Lord, you touch their liver, touch their spleen, every area of the body, every internal organ of the body. I pray, Lord, for every woman in this place. I pray that the generations that would follow her would call her blessed. Her children would call her blessed. And that the healing and the power of God would rest upon her. She would experience peace in the midst of that storm. I pray, Lord, that you would send a word of peace to each and every home. I pray that you would send financial peace upon each and every banking account, every home in this valley. I pray, Lord, that you would pour out such an overwhelming blessing, literally that it would overwhelm them, that they couldn't contain it. And I ask, Lord, that you would make these people holy. Make them, Lord, your people, and that they would never depart from your ways. We ask that each and every genetic code be aligned with the will of God, not one virus or sickness, Lord. We invoke the blood of the Lamb. And we ask, Lord, that not one issue be outside the will of God. We ask, Lord, that each and every molecule and cell be in perfect alignment with your will at this moment. And so I pray for a breakthrough this week. We receive that breakthrough this week. I pray for that breakthrough this month. We receive it this month and this year. We receive it this year, Lord. I pray you give clear direction. Give each and every person clear, unmistakable direction. The steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. May those steps be ever so clear. I pray, Lord, that you would make each and every mind clear and give wisdom to each and every person in this place. To not only be able to have a larger territory, but the wisdom to manage that larger territory. And I ask, Lord, that you would give them that favor. Wherever they go, wherever they travel, give them favor. Unprecedented favor. As we conclude, and just before Pastor Rob comes, I'm going to ask everyone to repeat this prayer with me. I want you to do it in an audible voice. Say it with me. Father, in the name of Jesus. I give you my life. I give you my heart. I give you my heart. I give you my body. I give you my finances. The turbulences in my life. All the storms I face. I give you my chains. Every bondage in my life. Every in my life. I turn it all over to you. I ask for your freedom. I ask for your freedom. I ask for your power. I ask for your power. And I ask for your favor. I ask for your favor. 
I want to start over. This moment. Wipe the slate clean. And give me the faith that moves your hand. Help me to be someone of great faith who honors and who respects and who understands urgency and who depends upon you in Jesus' name. And I reject all of the work that the enemy has placed in my life. I uproot those seeds, the seeds of doubt, and I cast them aside so that I can walk in God's goodness, God's plan, God's direction. In Jesus' mighty name. And I thank you, Lord, that my eyes will see the great things that you're going to do. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name. Now give him praise. Give him praise. Give him praise. Give him thanks. Give him thanks. Give him praise. Give him thanks. Verbally give him thanks for that breakthrough. For that miracle. Name that miracle and tell him I give you thanks for that miracle. Thank you, Lord. God, we thank you, God, for the miracles. God, I thank you for meeting each one of us this morning, God, and answering these things. Lord, I thank you for this powerful word, God, that we would each examine barriers that are separating us from receiving your miracles. God, I I pray that you us to become for you, God, that we would need for you, God. God, thank you for the ministry, for the miracles, for the touch this morning through, through your incredible son, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Servant Jason this morning. Hallelujah. Father, we bless your name. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Was this good? Amen. Amen. Seven more nights of this. Seven nights of powerful ministry. We don't want to miss. You know, as you go back to your seat, and and we want to we want to receive that offering for Jason as we go. And this is kind of our dismissal here. But uh, Jason's going to be around all week long through the tent meetings. Love one another. The the ushers are at the back. You can put it in the in the in the boxes. Um, put it in any any offerings you give. Make sure you put it into an envelope this morning. Uh, with Jason Friend on it so that we can make sure all that gets to him.